Anjali Prasanna Paji Satsriya Kal once again Satsriya Kal <laughs> This is our third Satsriya Kal and I let's hope we can get this audio right this yes. time Yes Yes So first of Sorry, all Paji this time it was my computer <laughs> So first of all Paji how are you ki hal chal ki ho raha hai very good right now Thank you I mean mausam ke mein everything Mausam achhi hai um <laughs> so now it's we're get, going to start our sort of rainy season we have a um so in southern california we have rain in the winter so of course you're um, in pas you're in pasadena right so i think that's... pasadena yes yeah so you have rains you have rains in the winter we have rains in the winter roughly from december to aprilish um and not a lot of rain so it's mm-hmm. maybe one inch a week mm-hmm. through this period if we're lucky yeah even even we tend to have this winter monsoon which makes things really bad so how cold is it what is the temperature temperature is not too cold i think it's like now it's maybe 5 6 degrees uh centigrade but then <laughs> that, the, that the, is that is very cold no but that's only in the early morning right yeah. this is uh, so yeah. it's 6 am now mm-hmm. um later so, in the day it'll probably get to 15 20 degrees even in the winter mm-hmm. so it's not really bad you know it's it's really cold here as well but jab bhi main sochta ki thand lag rahi hai my mind immediately goes to everyone who's camping out there just, yes just yes of course difficult it must be for them because it is really really cold and yeah. even when you sit inside kamre de andar bhi baith ke nahi thand lagdi hai those guys are just exposed to all the elements and you know it's i think it's uh, people should understand how stressful it is for them yes right? yes bilkul te ek cheez main kai sare bolte hai ki daya nahi hai ki lokan ch सुप्रीम what should i say they kind of took a very uh, uh it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a clear cut position they they're looking to uh, open some sort of committee or just form some sort of committee where farmers and the government can talk and another another interesting thing is they kind of asked the representative of the government whether the government could stay the laws for some time so okay. whether they could stay the application of the laws for some time so if that right. happens that happens that might kind of that might solve positions for now because you know the farmers demand is of course that we are here till uh, all the laws the three main laws are totally repealed and the few other ordinances so if the supreme court manages to stay the laws for now i think that right. might form a sort of route that it might be a sort of a compromise position that farm unions say okay they're not applying the laws and the government says yes we're ready to talk so that might be a solution चलो वो उतना गल करते हैं वी आर हियर टू टॉक अबाउट यूएसए दे पहला पाजी जस्ट गिव अस एन ओवरव्यू ऑफ 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 योर इंटरेस्ट्स इन दिस एंड तुसी तुसी भी करते हो माड़ी मोटी गार्डनिंग सो जस्ट हां जी या सो आई लिव सो इन पासडीना दिस वाज um हिस्टोरिकली अ सिट्रस प्लांटेशन हां जी um so the whole area was used for citrus and actually the first citrus in the united states was planted quite close to here by the 
Spanish missionaries. And okay. they, but of course, they used Native Americans as forced labor to plant okay. these gigantic citrus groves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm just, um, I'm actually a software engineer by trade, but I have, right. I have a little bit of um, cultivated land outside my house, and it's not a very big plot, so it's one tenth of an acre for my whole house. Um, so I do a little gardening, mostly so you, vegetables. You do gardening, sabjiya, and some fruits, citrus, um, mostly citrus. And I have a few. I have put in some nectarines and so on. So we'll see how they how they do. So is is citrus native? Is it native to the region? No, no. Citrus is from China, right? China and uh, South Asia as well. So I think limes. Limes are close to India, maybe, uh-huh. um, and uh, oranges from somewhere in China, as far as I know. But it turns out that citrus grows well here. Actually, citrus could not grow in California without uh, significant irrigation. So I mentioned we have winter rain, um, uh-huh. but what I didn't mention is we have no summer rain, literally oh, no okay. summer rain. All right. um, so we have six to seven months of a dry period. That's a very and strange concept for us. <laughs> Yeah. It's a very strange concept. And so a lot of the times, you know, I look at gardening videos in, uh, if they're posted by, um, in India, mm-hmm. these plants are, you know, your plants are growing at 10 times the rate that they'll grow here in the summer. Because mm-hmm. it's, um, it's hot, dry, and then the wind is also very hot and dry. Mm-hmm. So there's an offshore wind that blows occasionally, and it's mm-hmm. super hot and dry. And so if the plants are not irrigated, they can dry out in like one day, um, one or two days, the plants can completely dry out. So do you also do a lot of, uh, do, you, do, you, do you have greenhouses? Do you grow plants in a controlled environment as well? I don't. Um, there are greenhouses around here, um, further north generally, because we have pretty warm summers. So we generally can grow most of our things without greenhouses. So the further north you go in, further north you go in the United States, the colder it gets and the more likely you are to need greenhouses. Mm-hmm. Because talking about uh, how different environments affect growth, right? So uh, one of our neighbors here, he has a greenhouse, and yeah. he 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 used that for growing tomatoes, right? Right. So you're talking about ten times growth here. So of course, in a greenhouse, when you can control moisture and temperature, his his plants were growing at say ten times of here. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so they were growing like they became really these giant tomato plants, which just reached all the way to the roof, and they had these huge tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean uh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So, so uh, people so, yeah, do I use. Think, uh, oh, go ahead. Hanji, Hanji, Padi. No, I was saying people do use greenhouses here too, mostly for season extension. So you can grow grow tomatoes in the summer quite easily um, without mm-hmm. greenhouses. But then, if you want to grow them through the winter, mm-hmm. they use greenhouses. I think this is important because now, see, we're talking about Punjab. We're talking about these bills. We're talking about so many things. But one thing that's clear is that there's no transition that we have to do in Punjab, Punjab de agriculture. Vich te. Te I think horticulture, growing fruits, growing vegetables, and growing vegetables in these sort of controlled environments, I think these are the kind of technologies and the kind of things that we will have to begin learning here. Right. And, uh, and I think that is something that people who are sitting outside, like a lot of NRIs, they ask, uh, a lot of our diaspora people, they ask how they can help help things here. So just kind of bringing these technologies, hydroponics and, you know, all these ideas, bringing them, bringing them to India and 
is doing some kind of controlled farming to right. grow these more more high value uh, crops. I think that is something uh, that we can do. So, and, uh, Hanji. Yeah. So on those lines, like I do know that the the bell peppers we get uh, at the grocery store here come from Canada actually, mm-hmm. and they are grown by by um, I think it's a Punjabi-owned farm, oh. um, and they're growing them in BC, which is you know cold compared to here, pretty cold in in a greenhouse. So along those lines, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of people who know how so, to. So how does it how, do, how, how does it come here? Does it come by ship or by uh, on trucks? Um, I think it's mostly rail, but I'm not sure. Okay, rail, but it is quite far, right? The distance is quite a lot. It is quite far, yeah. Yeah, so that would be about uh, close to 1,500 or maybe more than that kilometers. Yes, and it's very weird because I would not expect to find Canadian bell peppers in a supermarket when we are so close to Mexico and uh, we can grow them natively here, but. In the winter, typically, it's the Canadian ones because they're a controlled environment. But Canada is very interesting in terms of agriculture. There's so much to talk about. But we're talking about America and how, and of course, you mentioned uh, that citrus was brought there from China. So I think this is the most interesting thing about agriculture in the USA because this entire idea of the Colombian exchange, right? So uh, right. a lot of uh, crops that have come to America have come from outside and a lot of American crops have reached us after the 15th century. So I think that yes. is the most interesting thing. The pattern of agriculture is this very colonial pattern where colonies, uh, in the truest sense, uh, yes. we call colonialism basti vaad in Punjabi, right? Hmm. So these actual bastis were made, these actual villages were made. Yeah. Europeans came there, they brought their crops and they brought their uh, animals and they brought their way of life there, right? So I think Absolutely. that is the most interesting thing. So would you, would you like to give us a little bit of context there? Sure. Um, so you mentioned that, yeah, the cropping patterns have changed significantly in the United States since the arrival of Europeans, right? So the yeah. um, the basic vegetables that we would recognize as indigenous American vegetables, indigenous okay. to the United States as opposed to South America, um, are basically corn, beans, and squash, right? These are the main crops that you can grow here, Um especially on the East Coast. Uh-huh. And, um, and of course, lots of, um, it used to be a lot of meat as well, because there were huge herds of bison and turkey and, you know, life, um, wild, wildlife was abundant. Yeah. And it still is to some degree relative to the rest of the world. Wildlife is really abundant here. Uh-huh. Just uh, animals in these wide open spaces, right? Yeah, yeah. So you have... Yeah. You have parts of the country that are really wide open, um, large plain areas, kind of like, almost like an African savanna. Um, mm-hmm. Grasses are less tall and so on, but it has that same kind of feel. So I, I, I believe a lot of the crops that the Europeans uh, brought there were, were things like wheat and uh, rice. Do they grow rice uh, in the USA? They don't uh, grow a lot of rice. Um, but I'm sure they grow a little bit of rice. I'm not fully familiar with the rice cultivation. It's definitely I, 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 not. I don't think so. I don't think so. The rice yeah, it's not a major crop. Uh, and I, in most places of the country, there's just not enough, not enough rain for it. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what are the main crops? I think wheat is a major crop. Then you have corn. And... Yeah. So in the, um, in the bread basket of the United States, which is where most of the grains are grown, um, which is 
in the Midwest region, which is somewhere in the middle of the country to slightly to the north, um, is basically wheat, corn, soybean, and alfalfa. These are the main crops that are grown. And then wheat is grown in the winter. Other three are largely grown in the summer. And those other three are primarily animal food. <laughs> right, so there's oh, this... Alfa, 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 it's a type of grass that's used okay. for animal feed. Okay. So wheat, soybean, corn, maize, these are all primarily used for animal feed, right? Um, yes. So alfalfa is a, yeah, alfalfa is a forage crop used for hay and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then soybean and soybean and the field corn that they grow, which is the vast majority of the corn that's grown is not the kind we can eat, um, but it's the kind that's ground up and used as animal feed. All right, all right. So this is kind of the major, uh, major kind of synergy between uh, marine crops and livestock. So yeah. And what, what, is, what, is, what is the kind of geography of these crops? Because of course, USA is so huge. So yes. the perspective of that is very important. Yeah, so so like I mentioned, the Midwest is primarily the, the grain belt of the United States. And then um, the California is... Central, central USA. And... Yeah, roughly central USA. So states like Iowa and so on are the most... Um, let me see. So, I mean, from, from an Indian perspective, the way we understand USA is like there's, there's, there's New York and those places on one side... <laughs> Yeah, and there is California and all that on the other side. And yes, there's a huge space in the middle. The space in the middle, these wide open spaces. So the right. Midwest is kind of the central region. Yeah, you can say the central region, but it's closer to the east than the west. Because once you get west of the um, west of the Mississippi River, the amount of rainfall you get in the summer is extremely low. So it's very hot and dry in the summer. Mm-hmm. So it's really. Um, yeah, so that's the grain belt. And then most of the vegetables, 90% of the vegetables consumed in the United States are actually grown in California. Okay. So California has a huge agricultural industry. Um, mm-hmm. Even though you normally don't associate it with California, it yeah. has a very large fruit and vegetable industry. Mm-hmm. As well as grapes and wine. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just talk about this this Midwest region, right? I think I think this is the most. I think first of all, uh, we we know that uh, most of the settlement of the United States was was from east to west. Yes, so it was like a movement from east to west. So a lot of these. Uh, so initially, of course, you had those uh, smaller uh, farms for colonial settlements, just to sort of sustain them. But when yeah. the United States began to become larger, as the population began to grow, there was more intensive farming in this Midwest region. Right. Right. So, so there was kind of pre-feeding of U.S. history. So that there was, was the core farming region in the United States. Yeah. Well, well, not just that. So that was the core food farming region. But a lot of farming in the United States was driven by um, commodities for export. Right from the very oh. beginning. So you have cotton, sugar, and tobacco, and those are all uh, cheap to grow in the United States because the U.S. uses slave labor. Right. <laughs> so this becomes a very key. Um, difference between what was grown in the South, which was primarily the slave states, and -hmm. those were growing tobacco, cotton, and sugar, Mm -hmm. and what was grown slightly to the North, Mm -hmm. which were, at a certain point, I don't know when slavery was abolished in the North states, but those became the food states. Mm -hmm. That's where the grain was produced. Um, Mm -hmm. 
the South actually was <clears throat> became extremely rich by exporting these goods, which were in very high demand in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I mean, uh, what the the kind of farming that went on in the South, it was it was yeah. more of an industrial scale farming, right? I mean, it was industrial scale. industrial scale farming. Yeah. It was definitely yeah. It was industrial scale farming, and actually, this was the you know, when you hear the term factory farming, this was really where factory farming was was born. Was born, and it was not that the farm. It was not that the the factory farming happened before the factory. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's important to note that actually the way these farms were organized were like factories, because even the workers were slaves, which they would log, you know, in their books as this is the amount of people we own. And this is what we want to produce for the next year and so on. So these kinds of things were managed uh, in a very almost mechanical way, right? Even though they're human beings, they're being treated like machines. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that I think uh, that, that is very important because uh, so, uh, so I think when, when was slavery abolished? What, what year was it abolished? Slavery was abolished. Uh, I should know this off the top of my head, but it's uh, the late 1800s, so not not very long ago. Mm-hmm. So then, did you have a kind of change in the kind of farming, or did they just uh, move from uh, formal slavery to informal slavery, or what? Yeah, essentially, yeah. essentially, that's what you had. You moved from sh- uh, slavery to sharecropping. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the Civil War. Um, so in 1865, slavery was abolished. I just looked it up. I should have known it offhand, but I didn't know that. Um, after the slavery, after the Civil War, there was a reconstruction period, right? Mm-hmm. So the North wins the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Slavery is abolished, and then they try to um, they try to live up to the idea that everyone should be free, right? Mm-hmm. And so they try to make reparations to whichever slaves exist. Um, but then that is quickly snuffed out because mm-hmm. the South, in the South, um, democratic Southern governors take control and they basically push back whatever reforms were made during, um, during that period. And mm-hmm. then you have the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. So now a lot of the slaves Jim, Jim are- Crow, I, What I know of Jim Crow, Jim Crow were, were these set of laws, right? Which were very sort of, a, you create, created a sort of apartheid kind of state. Yeah. Is, yeah, is that right? you, yeah, absolutely. So you basically had effectively an apartheid regime created mm-hmm. in the southern United States. Mm-hmm. And the North was not powerful enough at the time to challenge that. Um, and maybe they weren't that interested either. But so most of the slaves just went from slavery to sharecropping. And sharecropping is when you basically do the work of, um, you do the same work you were doing before. And then you get a percentage of the crops as your wage. Now, this is so, so interesting because uh, I'm sorry, sorry for interrupting you. This this yeah. word, this term, sharecropping, because this also uh, occurs. This this is this is in our laws. So our contract farming system is going to create a sharecropping system, and this okay. is one of the sort of flagged areas which has been flagged by our farm unions because the kind of uh, the, the the legal. Uh, Sort of uh, the allotment of responsibilities and liabilities, etc., is not clear here. So sharecropping is something that uh, that is something that something that we need to talk about. The sharecropping was essentially where labor had a certain pre predetermined or uh, predecided share in the crop that was produced in the output of the farm. Yeah, basically. So am I right, in that right. So the so the laborer basically goes uses the 
um, farmer's equipment, um, works the land, and then they give a portion to the property owner, right? Now, hold on, hold on. Now, sharecropping is is fairly common across the world, but in this particular instance, it was you know a class of people who had been, who who still had no legal rights, and so it was very easy to turn it into a very exploitative system. Otherwise, it's a system that probably, um, like it it might be something that could work in theory, right? And I think the UN and various other groups have even encouraged it in certain cases. Um, because it reduces the risk as opposed to tenant farming, where the farmer has to rent the land, um, where all the risk is on the farmer. In this case, the farmer is using the equipment, doesn't typically have to go into debt, um, and then works using the property owner's equipment, um, and then gets a portion for his labor. But because the system um, had restricted legal rights to such a degree, basically the property owners could just bully the farmers into giving up most of what they um what they owed them so i think uh, what i get from this is it is very important to have a good legal regime around this sharecropping right. system yeah unless you have that rights based legal regime the sharecropping system can become very exploitative and it does right and it and it did in the united states yeah so let's just fast forward a little bit so uh, so of course now we're moving into the 20th century and uh, moving into the 20th century, there was an expansion of the United States economy. Right. Of everything, there was uh, industrialization began to kick in. There were more farms, there were more farm farmed areas, more irrigated areas. And one big sort of change happened uh, around the Great Depression. So this change was, of course, uh, because of the Great Depression. Now, again, this is something very interesting. A lot of farms were abandoned in the United States. So a lot of people uh, were just, just became destitute and they left their farms and a lot of farms returned, uh, they became forests again. So uh, I think this is very interesting and this is a contrast to India. So uh, of course we didn't have uh, anything of the magnitude of the Great Depression, but we saw the lockdown recently, right? Right. So, uh, so Hanji, what happened in the lockdown was a lot of people who lost their jobs immediately, who had nothing, nothing to survive on, they returned to their villages and they used whatever little farms or little holdings that they had to sort of subsist and survive. So I think that is a sort of contrast uh, in the United States because of, uh, because of uh, destitution, they were forced to move away from their farms. And in India, uh, in uh, situations of stress or destitution, people move to their farms. Right. And I think that is because of the marketization of agriculture in the United States. And uh, I think that is, something, uh, that is something that is important. So, uh, so yeah. Would you like to uh, just add something here? Um, no, I'm not super familiar with the Great Depression um portion <laughs> yeah so uh so yeah I, w- I was doing a little reading on this and this is something that caught my uh, caught my attention because it's very different from from india because in india of course we have this very uh socialized farming so it's socialized in a sense and it has a lot of safety nets right so that was really interesting but yeah let's so what happened in, in the wake of the great depression a lot of farms became uh, sort of destitute a lot of people left farming and moved to cities so after that, of course, uh, uh, there, w- there was a new, new sort of wave of regeneration of the economy. And then the farms that you had were much larger in size. Yes. So there was prob- probably some consolidation of farms. And, uh, and as we spoke last time, you mentioned that the average farm size now is quite large in the United States, right? Yeah, the average farm size now is about 450 acres. So, uh, yeah. and, and most of these are family-based farms, right? Yes. Yeah, so most of the farms are still family farms. 
uh, as in I think it's somewhere around 90% are family owned farms, but um, the people who work the farms are not necessarily always the property owners, right? Mm -hmm. So the condition of agricultural labor is, is not very good. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think this entire transition, this entire transition from the 1930s to the 1980s, because of course, in the middle, you also have the world wars. So, uh, yes. so I, I, I was doing a little reading here. And of course, you're going to talk about what happened in the 1980s in more detail. Let me just lay out the context a little bit. So in the 1930s, of course, we had a lot of people leaving farming. And then we had a consolidation of farms. Then around the world war, there was, there, there was a massive growth in agriculture again. Of course, because of the role that the United States played in the, in the global economy of the time. And uh, so by the end of the World War, of course, the United States was one of the uh, largest uh, producers of, of everything in the world, right? So, uh, so then, of course, we move into your territory now, moving into the 1950s and approaching the 1980s. So yeah, you can sort of uh, take it from here. Okay. So yeah, after the World Wars, you basically have the U.S. is the leading producer of pretty much everything in the world. Yeah. Um, and U.S. agriculture has sky-high demand, right? So in the 60s and early 70s, it's really the peak of American agriculture because global demand for American wheat and corn is very high. And mm -hmm. the Soviet Union is also importing large amounts of grain from the United States because of its own poor production. And it's oh. importing grain not just for itself, but for its other allied states, I think that's um, something that a lot of people might not know because we just we, we assume that uh, all these ex exports which is going to developing countries like India. So, right. uh, so yeah. Yeah, India was also a big importer at the time. Uh, a lot of it was given as food aid in order to try and prevent India from moving into the Soviet camp. All right. Right. Um, so, and most of the way the Soviets are paying for this grain is by exporting oil. So the Soviets export oil to the United States and Europe. They get some money and they buy grain. So um, by the time so this Nixon... Was happening, is, this was happening when? In which decades was this happening? The Soviet Union imports, I, I know it was happening in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if it was happening before then. All right. Then we move so, to Nixon. Yeah. So then during the Nixon administration, um, the farmers are explicitly told by the U.S. government that demand is going to keep going up, land prices are going to keep going up, plant more grain, right? And in addition to that, interest rates are very low, the food prices are high, and the U.S. has the most efficient system of agricultural production on the planet. So life is pretty good. Um, loans are also very easy to come by. So the U.S. has or had at the time a very large number of rural banks and the bankers in these places have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the farmers. Mm -hmm. And they're happy to give out the loans, including for further land purchases, because the assumption is that land values will only go up. Mm -hmm. So, and we already talked about which kind of crops are grown in the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So just to reiterate, it's corn, wheat, soybean, and alfalfa. And winter wheat is the only thing that can survive the cold in the Midwest. Um, and it's also the only crop grown for humans among these four, right? The other three are primarily grown for feeding animals, especially pigs. So this might be something different from, uh, from India, where most of these crops are actually grown for animals okay. and are aimed at feedlots. So, so these kind of two, three decades, the, to, to sort of uh, the impression that I get is that 
the agriculture in the United States, first of all, it expands quite a lot. Yes. And it gets more and more linked to the international market. Yeah. And it is also linked to the state's diplomacy. So, uh, yes. so you have this entire sort of links happening in which uh, agriculture right from the bottom is linked to uh, what is happening in, on the international scene. Yes. And, uh, and, and then, of course, we move to the 80s where you have a crisis. Yeah. So yeah. in the late 70s, there's a series of events that shake the industry. So first, the, the global... 70s. In the 70s, yeah, late 70s is when it begins. Um, so first, the global output of wheat begins to rise. As many countries, you know, they have their green revolution, they're planting higher yield varieties of wheat. Um, mm -hmm. They're getting more consistent production. Mm -hmm. And there's a slight reduction in demand for wheat from the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the USSR at this time is still importing grain. So the farmers are relatively fine. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the late 70s, a viral disease hits pigs and it decimates right. a large number of pig operations in the Midwest. And mm -hmm. this really reduces demand for corn, soybean, and alfalfa. Mm -hmm. And finally, in 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then President Jimmy Carter responds by initiating a grain embargo to the USSR. And this mm -hmm. really slashes the market, right? So they've already got two hits. Mm -hmm. um, they have the third hit and the crisis starts. Um, mm -hmm. Starts in earnest. Then in 1981, yeah. mm. oh, sorry, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, please, please, please go on, please go on. Okay. Yeah. So in 1981, um, Paul Volcker, who's chairman of the Fed, he decides to try and reduce inflation. So inflation is going up in the United States. And the way he does that is by tightening the, mon the money supply. Mm -hmm. So once he tightens the money supply, the interest rates go up. Now, because these farms are so large, most farmers do have to borrow money for yearly operations. And as interest rates go up, food prices go down. And they realize there's actually no way for them to break even. So by the early 80s, the total interest on farm loans has exceeded farm incomes. So no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, they can't fix that, right? Um, the more wheat they produce, the more prices fall. And then there's a gap between interest payments and their incomes that they can't bridge. Mm -hmm. So when people are talking now about how farmers should face the market in India, um, they're basically asking for something impossible. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is really, really important. Because when you start linking such an important, such a crucial sector of your economy to the international market, there are so many calamities, so many black, black swan events that can happen, right? Right. And, and right now in India, we have a market that is sort of protected, especially for agriculture. It is protected from, the, from shocks in the international market because yeah. we have high production, right? And most of our consumption happens within our country. So whenever we have excess stock, we just export it. So we don't have that problem of relying on the international market either for incomes here, incomes of farmers here, or for, for, for of course, for getting food for ourselves. And if we sort of break that, break that barrier, then, then bad things can happen, just like they happened in the United States. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So, so this is sort of cautionary tale uh, for us. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so then you have the cycle of desperation. Pharma suicides start to go up. During the crisis, they're four times the general average. Um, in states like Iowa, you have 250 farm bankruptcies a day, and these are pretty large farms, right? So you can think about the acreage that's basically being lost. Um, 
And then finally, that it has a it has an effect on rural businesses. So they start going under because they're very heavily dependent on agriculture to bring in money into the region. And from then on, the camaraderie of rural life is basically shattered. So this marks a huge transformation in rural life in the United States. Uh-huh. So because, because of that cycle of debt, right? And that is something that farmers just cannot get out of. Right. So all these farms begin to go bankrupt. And even now, I was reading something uh, that only the largest farms, only farms that uh, are, say, above, above 1,000, above 2,000 acres, only they are able to sustain themselves. Only they are able to make a profit. Even now, and the crisis that you mentioned then, it's going on till now. So these small yes. farms still cannot sustain themselves. And uh, it's only the largest farms. And uh, I mean, we spoke about averages, right? But if you actually uh, go into the census data, so averages can be deceptive, right? Because, yes. uh, because averages, are, of course, they don't give you an exact picture of the kind of the pattern of land holdings. So there are a lot of these, uh, these uh, you know, small farms still, come, again, uh, relative to the U.S. farm sizes. But there is a huge chunk of really, really big farms. Yes. And uh, these are the top, uh, top 5 or 6% farms, which are really, really big. And they are the only farms which are sort of uh, able, which are financially secure and able to produce a profit for themselves. So all small farms, all farms below that, are just, uh, just trapped in the cycle of debt and they aren't able to get out of it. And, uh, and I think you also mentioned something really interesting, how this had a sort of cascading effect on just, just rural life and just all of rural America. Yes. So, uh, we see that even now, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, now you really see where rural America, which used to be, you know, some of the, it used to produce, you know, some of the world's greatest scientists and engineers and so on. Now, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that float about. People believe the system is biased against them. And so they come up with explanations for the world that don't make any sense. Um, and so a lot of the, the extreme right-wing populism that you see now um, stems from stems from this too. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 this is a really scary story. I mean, when you when you come, when you actually think of the parallels, when you think of what might happen here. Yes. Yeah, Prasan. I think uh, I think uh, we should begin closing now. So yeah. uh, so so what the uh, I think we can begin talking about this problem of the cycle of debt. Right. So, so once you begin linking to the international market, right? So once once those pressures from the international market they begin to operate on your domestic farming, your domestic yes. sector, they begin to apply pressure. And like you said, in the United States, it created the cycle of debt, where smaller and smaller farms became more and more unsustainable. They just could not make enough money to pay back their loans, right? So, right. uh, and even now, this, this is something that is going on till now. I was just read, reading an article. I think I mentioned that before as well when we were speaking. So, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, right? And this, the article said that farms with 1 million or more annual sales, which make up 4% of USA's farms, they are the only farms which can uh, sustainably survive, which can make a profit to survive. So just 4% of USA's farms uh, can rise above the cycle of debt. And this is something that began then, right? It has an effect till now. And of course, uh, we can talk about the effects in, on, on, on the economy. 
which is uh, which is bad enough in itself, but uh, it has a huge impact on society, right? Right. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, um, it has a huge societal impact. So, during that time um, in the '80s, you have farmer suicides going up. You have about 250 farm bankruptcies per day in states like Iowa. And then it hits rural banks. And once it starts hitting rural banks, it also hits rural businesses uh, because they're so heavily dependent on agriculture. And then this basically completely changes rural life in America from the 80s onwards. So you had rural America responsible for large percentages of the world's scientists and engineers and so on. But now um, we don't really see that anymore. And in addition to that, you see the proliferation of things like conspiracy theories, um, extreme right-wing populism. So that kind of solidarity of the rural community is destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, you have very atomized people who believe the world is against them and come up with these crazy concoctions of what is going on and how to fix it. So society, um, in a sense, has been destroyed because of this. Rural society, yeah. yeah rural society. And of course, and then, that, that has an impact on the entire political system, the entire polity, right? Yeah, and because, it's, because the U.S. is such a powerful country, it actually has an impact on the world, right? One of the reasons yeah. the U.S. doesn't take climate change seriously is because tons of people don't believe it, it's real. So this kind of thing is really, you know, really destructive. Um, so, yeah, and I'm, you mentioned the yeah, only yeah. large farm surviving. That also has an impact on the diet, Mm -hmm. Right. So if you think about the food diversity in India versus the U.S., it's very, very hard food diversity you have in India mm -hmm. um, over here, mm -hmm. except in some states where you have heavy fruit and vegetable production. Because mm -hmm. large farms, of course, they're going to supply to processing, because uh, food processing industry, right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, the kind of a... markets, we have farmers markets, sabji, mandiya, lagdiya, nijadiya. Directly, yes. if, if, if anyone's lived in a city for I've lived in Chandigarh for a long time, so Chandigarh has this excellent, excellent system in which uh, different sectors of Chandigarh, Chandigarh, of course, is divided into a lot of these sectors. So every hmm. sector has a farmer's mandi uh, on, on, a, on a certain day. So, so there is right. a farmer's mandi going on in every day of the week somewhere in your vicinity close by. So farmers from the fields, they bring crops. They sit there. In fact, they bring their trolleys. Trolleys to chakke, jinna marji, aale na, aalo, ola na, ola. And it is so easy because I, I I used to live there alone. So, pehla the apna kadi mandiya to saman lagda ni si we used to go to the supermarket. But if you actually go there, you can just take this big chola and you can just fill it up in five or six hundred rupees and you can you can get your entire week's worth of vegetables and assortment of vegetables everything. Garlic, garlic, right. jeeriya chiza, luxury mandiya jaate hain because of vegetables. Yeah, and you do have the farmer's market movement in some states. Um, so there is a bit of that, but it is really a luxury, as in the prices are significantly higher than the grocery store. Um, and so the working class really isn't generally shopping at farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. There is so this more rising of a luxury, back yeah. to the farm kind of sentiment in, uh, in the West, right? There is, yeah, there is some of the sentiment. Um, also, it's driven by the fact that the age of the average farmer is going up mm -hmm. um, significantly. Um, but yes, there is a back to the farm sentiment. Um, and we do see some of that happening mm -hmm. now. 
um, but it's primarily for higher value crops mm-hmm. because it's just not economically feasible to do it for your standard grains and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, technically speaking, it could be possible. I mean, you could make arrangements that could make that kind of a uh, distance closer because you buy buy wheat from someone take it to a chakki get it get it done it's a simple thing and technically that can happen in cities as well and when you just you speak about eliminating the middleman i mean i mean a lot of that responsibility lies on consumers to actually go to farmers and just pick up your food directly Right. Mechanisms for that. I mean, that would be a good, uh, good And the the middlemen provide a very important service too, right? I think Aman and you have discussed this yeah. um, in previous episodes. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, here the biggest problem again is not so much for larger farmers. Again, the definition of a larger farmer here is very different from there. So a large large farmer here would be someone who owns ten hectares of land. That's just twenty five acres. So if you have twenty five acres, you are a large farmer. Again, those large farmers have, have a lot of margin. They can grow more cash crops. They can grow sugarcane. They can grow. Uh, they can grow. Uh, in some places, there's also cotton, but cotton prices are really down now. So larger farmers can uh, produce quantities in bulk. But of course, when you do that, you can. Uh, but for smaller farmers, these kinds of mechanisms are really important. For these small marginal farmers who grow vegetables, they have a small field, and they divide that field to grow vegetables and grow a little bit of grain for themselves. So those kind of farmers are the farmers who need real support. And these kind of mechanisms really help there. Yes, and also we can we can later on we can discuss the political reaction to the crisis, what's going on now, and so on. We can do another follow up later. 